The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Genesis chapter 3, continuing our work here in Genesis 1 through 11. I love that song. I, I heard it for the first time back in 2010. I'll be honest, when I first heard it, I thought it was kind of an odd tune, an odd cadence, and I wasn't a big fan of it. The more I listened to that and I thought about those words, I was like, oh, this is one of the best songs I've probably heard in the last 10 years, at least in my opinion. So, and actually, Jordan, can I make a change to your order of worship? Did he leave the room? Oh, there you are. Can we sing that at the end instead of I Will Rise? Okay. Genesis chapter 3. Let's read these first 24 verses as we normally do, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Moses writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, last week we we started working through this particular passage of the story. We were looking at these first six verses and trying to understand Adam and Eve's sin against you. And what we learned was that it wasn't just one thing. They were engaged in a complete, total rebellion against your sovereignty, against your lordship. And so last week, Lord, all we did from start to finish of our time in the word was look at sin. We tried to understand it in all its ugliness. We tried to see how fully they rebelled against you. And then we stopped. And this week, Lord, it's been my hope, my desire, my prayer that we as a church body have spent time trying to understand our own guilt in relation to the guilt we see here in these first six verses. Because the truth of the matter is, Lord, we are just as bad of sinners as Adam and Eve were. So today, Lord, as we come back to this, as we come back into these first six verses and we complete what we started last time, will your spirit be engaged in our midst to help us understand sin in the way you do, to help us understand ourselves like you understand us, and then to help us see Christ with new eyes this morning. That's our desire. So we give you this time. We give you our hearts and our minds, my words as weak as they are. Lord, will you take all these things and work them for your glory so that Jesus Christ is exalted today. In his name we pray. As I just said there last week, we began looking at these first six verses of Genesis 3 in an attempt to understand the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God. And the word rebellion that we keep using is not one that we just plucked out of thin air. In fact, I would argue that it's really the best word that we could possibly use, perhaps with the exception of one, which we'll come to in a minute, one you probably already know. It's the best word we could possibly use to explain what we see here in Genesis 3. In fact, all of those R words that I gave you a few weeks ago, I'll put them up here behind me so you can remember them. All of those R words that we looked through, they weren't just chosen arbitrarily. And and I'll pause for a second and say to you that there's a part of me that doesn't like using alliterated lists because I think it's kind of hokey and old-fashioned in some senses. However, I continue using them because of the very reason that people started using them in the first place is they're easy to remember. It sticks in your mind. And while some of those words maybe took me a few moments to think of, like what would be the best, best choice for this or that, the word rebellion was a no-brainer. It was, it was instantaneous that that was the right word to use here. And the only other word that might possibly be better than this is, can you guess what it might be? The word Treason. Okay, the word we keep coming back to over and over and over again over these last couple weeks. I looked up the definition of treason this week to give to you. 
where treason is defined like this. It's the crime of betraying one's country, especially by attempting to kill the sovereign or overthrow the government. And as you think about treason throughout history and even in our own country today, someone who's guilty of treason is guilt or is worthy of death. It's a capital offense. It's a major crime. It's a major thing to charge someone with something like that. And so for us to sit here and look at these first six verses of Genesis 3 and to say that it's not just about eating some fruit that they weren't supposed to eat, to say that they are engaged in rebellion and in treason is a very serious charge, which hopefully then explains what we did last Sunday. Because last Sunday I started off by saying that I had been influenced by uh, that Curtis Allen song, the, the first track on his CD, Process of the Pardon. It's called Process Number One, The Indictment. And in that song, he, he presents the story of Genesis 3 in a courtroom setting where there is a prosecutor who is bringing a case against Adam specifically. And he's charged with not pleasing the Lord and with wanting to be Lord himself. And in the song then, what they do is they take all the details of the story and they lay them out so that you can see them as evidence. You know, eating the fruit is an evidence of the fact that he didn't really care about what God wanted, that he simply wanted to please himself. It's not the crime in and of itself. Do you understand the difference, the distinction I'm trying to make here? And so we worked through those things in that manner, trying to take them to court, so to speak. And the indictment was simple. The indictment was cosmic treason. We brought the indictment against them in three counts. Number one, that Adam and Eve, and I'm just going to review this because this was a, we're, we're picking up where we left off last time. Number one was that Adam and Eve did willfully and knowingly rebel against the spiritual capacity with which they had been made by God. Those three things we saw in Genesis 2 when we worked through that, that they had been made with spiritual capacity, moral responsibility, and communal assistance so that they could serve God, obey his commands here in this creation, enjoy his abundant life that he had made. And the very first thing you see when you turn to Genesis 3 is that they are rebelling against the spiritual capacity with which they've been made. The first evidence of that was seeing that they devalued and disregarded their role as image bearers. They didn't care about the fact that they had been made in God's image. Part of, part of the serpent's offer to Adam and Eve here in the story is the ability to be like God. And I said, that makes, that makes no sense to me. No, number one, he can't offer such a thing. The only person who can is God himself. That's obvious. But number two, why would Adam and Eve be tricked by this? They're already like God. They're already image bearers. And so the fact that they hear this and that they want whatever it is that that Satan is offering them, it shows that they didn't really consider the thing they had been given to be worthy enough. They wanted more. They were going to take uh, take this into their own hands so they could be like God the way they wanted to be. They, They devalued and disregarded their role as image bearers. Second, they devalued and disregarded the provision that God had made for them. Here, God had given them a sacred garden temple that is filled with every tree that is good for food and pleasant to the eyes. And God says, eat anything except this. Eat as much as you want except for this one thing. And so the moment they're standing there in front of the tree and they realize that this tree is good for food and that it's pleasant to the eyes, the same language used by God himself in giving them all the other trees... What they're really saying is, God, your provision for us is not enough, and we'll take our own provision into our own hands. 
They devalued and disregarded what God had given them, and in so doing, they rebelled against his lordship. Count number two was that Adam and Eve did willfully and knowingly rebel against every moral responsibility with which they had been entrusted by God, every single one of them. There was three things we looked at there. Number one, that they disobeyed God's command to have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Remember, as part of their status as as image bearers, they're supposed to have dominion over all these creatures. Well, you turn to Genesis 3.1, and what's standing in front of them? It's a serpent, a beast of the field, Moses points out to you. And here in the story, rather than having dominion over this creature, what do you see happen? This creature has dominion over them. It's a reversal of what is supposed to be occurring. And by the end, they are destroyed by this very being which they were supposed to have rule over. Second, they disobey God's command to work and keep the garden. Adam was supposed to minister before God and protect this sacred place. But he fails in both counts. He allows evil into this sacred place. And as a result, he himself is kicked out of it rather than removing the evil he is removed. Third, then, and most recognizable, they disobey God's command to not eat of this one tree. The the thing we normally focus on first is actually the the end of their failure, so to speak, in terms of their moral responsibilities because they had failed at all the other things first. But here they are. Don't eat of this one tree. That's the only thing they have to do. That's it. Or not do, excuse me. It's the only, only negative command that they're given, and they fail. They eat of the tree in full knowledge of the fact that they're not supposed to do it. And so I would look at this and say, you can see it's a clear, willful, knowing rebellion against all of the moral responsibilities that they have been given by God. Count number three was that Adam and Eve did willfully and knowingly rebel against the communal assistance with which they have been provided by God. Adam and Eve had literally been made for one another. Adam is supposed to lead. He's supposed to do these things that God has given him to do, but he can't do them alone. Eve is given to him to be his helper. Yet what do you see in the garden? You see, first of all, that Adam chooses not to lead. He, he's standing there, and, and you can see it when you look at verse 6. He's right there next to her. The entire time throughout the story, he's right there next to her. He hears all the things the serpent says. He sees what's going on. He watches Eve reach out her hand to take of the fruit, and he does nothing. He's a complete failure as a leader here in this story. And Eve's not guiltless either because she fails to help. She makes a choice not to help. Here she is with a task that is simply to help Adam do and be all that God has made him to do and be. But what does she do? She goes right along with the serpent. It's not, hey, Adam, look, this isn't right. Something's not right about this. We, We need to get rid of this thing. It's not, hey, Adam, remember God's promises? Remember what he did for us, what he's given us, what he's warned us about? She does nothing other than then eat the fruit. Her role as a helper is rejected here in the story, just like Adam rejects his role as leader. Folks, this is cosmic treason. And so what I set before you here in Genesis 3, 1 through 6 last time, it's not just, not just a simple act of eating a piece of fruit they're not supposed to eat. 
Now, I, I attempted to show you the complete, total, willful, knowing, purposeful rebellion of Adam and Eve against everything, literally everything that we had seen up to this point through Genesis 1 and 2. That was, that was my indictment against them. And it was at this point last time that we stopped, okay? And that was unusual, because normally if I have to divide a sermon into two parts, I don't like to just end it very abruptly. I normally try to give you some kind of an application or connection to the gospel or to Jesus or to the Christian life or whatever it may be, so that you, you go home with those things on your mind. However, I didn't want to do that last time. I, I wanted us to end last Sunday hopeless. I don't know that anyone actually walked out of here hopeless, but I wanted us to walk out of here having seen nothing other than sin. The ugliness of sin. The completeness of sin. The totality of sin that's there in Genesis 3, 1-6 through 6 was very unusual for us. And the only thing I asked you to do throughout the week was to go home and think about one question. And it was, are you guilty of these same sins? And the question was worded that way specifically because I don't want you to go home and just say, well, am I guilty of sin? Yeah, I'm guilty of sin. Everyone's guilty of sin. Okay? We give ourselves a pass because we all do it. It's like, do you breathe air? I breathe air. Okay, it's no big deal to breathe air because we all do it. I know we're guilty of sin. I understand that, and I understand that you understand that. But that wasn't the question. The question was, are you guilty of these same sins, these sins that we've seen here in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6? Are you a rebel like they are? Are you a traitor like they were? Well, my purpose this morning is to show us, to come back to where we ended last time, to show us that the answer to all of those questions is a resounding yes. That you and I are just as guilty of rebellion just as guilty of cosmic treason as were our first parents. We are no better than them. We are no different whatsoever. And so, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring an indictment against us using all the same three counts because all three still apply. And so count number one is this, that we have all willfully and knowingly rebelled against the spiritual capacity with which we have been made by God. Every single one of us in this room. We're no different. First, just like them, we have devalued and disregarded our role as image bearers. And in so doing, we have rebelled against God's lordship. In Romans 1, Paul makes a striking statement. In verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And if you're you're a thinking person and you're reading that, you should immediately ask the question, what truth? What truth do people, unrighteous people, suppress by their unrighteous deeds? What, What are they pushing down so that they don't have to see it and confront it and deal with it? Well, he answers that question for us in the next verse. He says, for what can be known about God, this is the truth, is plain to them. Why? Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Well, why are they without excuse? 
Why, why does this knowledge make them without excuse? Again, Paul answers this. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now let's, let's be very clear about something. Paul here in these verses does not explicitly address their role as image bearers, mankind's role as image bearers. He doesn't say they have borne the image of God, that they were made in his likeness. However, as I read through these verses, I can't help but see a number of allusions and similarities to Genesis 1-3. through Number one, he refers to people who suppress truth with unrighteousness. What's happening in Genesis 3 when the serpent walks up and says, Has God said, Oh, you will not surely die. They know the truth, and yet they make a conscious choice to suppress it so that they can go and follow the serpent and do what he says. Paul refers to an innate knowledge of God that all men possess because God has shown it to them. It's evident to them. And I would argue that the reason this is so is because we are image bearers. Because we have been made like him, and therefore we know him automatically. That there is no such thing in this world as an atheist. They're liars. They can suppress the truth, but they know God. Because God has made it plain to them. They're image bearers. Number three, he refers to mankind's choice to replace the glory of God with the images of other things, including man himself. Just like our first parents did to deny one so that they could have the other. It's exactly what we see in Genesis 3. But even more striking to me, as he refers to this desire to be wise, what they claim. They claimed wisdom. This was what they wanted. And in so doing, they became fools. Now, Paul's point is that even though God has blessed man with a unique spiritual position, man All men everywhere throughout all time have made a conscious choice to reject that, to rebel against God, and to replace it with other things. See, we're we're just like our first parents. All men have devalued and disregarded their role as image bearers, and in so doing, all men have rejected God's lordship. In our sin, when we sin, what we're saying to him is, you're not enough. Your plan isn't enough. Your purpose isn't enough. What you have said to me isn't enough. I want more. I want different. I want other. I want to be my own Lord. The essence of sin is the saying in our hearts and minds and actions that we do not want God to rule and reign over us. That's cosmic treason. Second, just like Adam and Eve, We have devalued and disregarded the provision that God has made for us. And in so doing, we have rebelled against his lordship. Paul goes on then in Romans 1, after he said these things, to lay out a whole list of examples of all the ways in which this sin shows itself in our lives. Now, I don't know that this list is exhaustive, but it's it's pretty thorough. It's pretty good. He says in verse 24, Therefore, because of all the things we just read... God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Does that, when you hear those words, does anything from Genesis 3 come back to mind? Isn't that exactly what Adam and Eve are doing? But he's talking about us all. He says, for this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. You say, oh, that's the bad stuff. Yeah, we'll keep reading. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And as I was reading through this list with Genesis 3 on my mind, I was struck by how many of these sins are a direct rebellion against God's provision for us. You think about, you know, the circumstances of life in which you find yourself, whatever that may be. Whatever things are coming across your plate, good or bad, positive or negative in your opinion, think about them all. And then think about all the times that you get angry at those things that you are ungrateful for what's coming in your life, you realize that God's sovereign, not just when things are good in your life, but even when things are bad. You understand that? And when you and I, I am as guilty of this as anybody, when I respond in anger and frustration to all of these things that are coming across my plate that I don't need and I don't want, I'm really saying to the Lord, I don't think you're in control of this, and I don't think you're taking good care of me. I'm rejecting his provision for me, because his provision isn't always flowers and sunshine. Sometimes it's rain as well. That's how life works. Or if I think about the things that I have, think about covetousness. What is the sin of covetousness? None of us in this room came in hungry this morning. All of us had beds to sleep in and a roof over our head last night. And yet this week, how many of us sat around and were just, oh, I wish I had that. If I just had that, I'd be happy. But we're ungrateful brats. We are unthankful for all the things that God has provided us. We are, every time we covet, every time we lust, every time we long for these other things, we're saying, God, your provision to me is not enough. I'll take my provision in my own hands. See, we're, we're no better. We're no different than our first parents. We do this all the time. It's cosmic treason on each and every one of our parts. That's count number one. Count number two is that we have all willfully and knowingly rebelled against every moral responsibility with which we've been entrusted by God, every single one of them. Now we have to do this one a little different. Because with Adam and Eve, it was easy in a way. There was only three things. That was it, okay? We could work through three things on a Sunday. Well, since then, God has laid out a whole lot more responsibilities for us. A whole lot more. 
And so time would not permit us to try to go through everything the Scripture says that we are supposed to be doing according to God's plan. I mean, goodness sake, let's just take two as an example. Just think about what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Who in here has succeeded? Yeah. Think of what we saw in Colossians with Paul as he says that we are to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of Jesus Christ. Who in here has succeeded? See, these are big picture things. These are high level. We haven't got into all the nitty gritty of what that might mean, and we're already failures at the upper end. <laughs> There's no way we could go through and see all of our many, many failures, but the fact of the matter remains, we failed at them all, every single one of them. And this really brings us to our understanding of what sin is. See, people, many people anyway, have this faulty understanding, including, including many Christians. So don't just assume that I'm talking about those other people that aren't here today. Many, many people have this faulty view of sin that's like, well, I know I do some bad stuff, but I also do some good things as well, so, you know, it works itself out in the end. No. No, you don't understand what I'm saying then. You are a complete failure. A complete rebel. You are guilty of treason through and through. And I just think of what Paul's going to say next in Romans 3. If you read ahead there in Romans. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about how we are on our own. There's nothing good. Not even a little bit. Even in the most kindest moment of your life, the, the, the most selfless thing we ever did on our own, it's still evil in God's eyes. It's still a complete and total failure. Do those words echo in your heart? Do you understand yourself like this? Christian, do you, do you still realize that on your own, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to please God? Not a thing. Unbeliever, do you realize that as well? That on your own, there is nothing that you can do to please God? On our own, he sees us as rebels, as traitors, as criminals through and through. We have willfully, knowingly rebelled against every moral responsibility with which we've been entrusted by God. We're cosmic traitors. Number three, we have all willfully and knowingly rebelled against the communal assistance with which we've been provided by God. Now for Adam and Eve, this only had to do with how they interacted with each other in the garden because that's, that's all there was. But when you stop and think about yourself, when I think about myself and all the various capacities in which I am placed around others to live my life with others, I see that my failure is complete in every sense. So as a husband, I have failed. I have failed to lead my wife, to love her the way that Christ loved the church. I failed. And you know what? Jamie's failed as well. 
She's failed to be the wife that God told her to be. To submit to me as the church is to submit to Christ and to respect. I failed as a father to my children. I sin against them all the time. All the time. And they failed to me. They disobey all the time. I failed as a citizen to obey my government every time I drive my car. I fail. I, I failed as a neighbor. I failed in the workplace. I failed in every relationship that you can imagine. I failed. And you have too. Every single one of them. We are complete and total failures when it comes to the various, the many facets of relationships that we live and work and breathe in as humans here in this society. Every single one of us have failed. As long as it suits our needs, we're okay. As long as you're nice to me and I like what you're doing, I'm good with that. But when you don't, I'm not so good with that anymore. We're failures. We are traitors. This is cosmic treason. When, when you really stop and think through the sin of Adam and Eve, and then you compare it to our own, we come to the unavoidable conclusion that we are as bad as they were. In fact, I would say we're worse because we know more. We've been given more. And to whom much has been given, much is required. We've sinned in all these same ways. We are guilty, we are rebels, we are traitors, we are criminals, and it is right for God's wrath to be aimed at all of us. When you, see, see this, is, this is important, listen up. When you begin to understand yourself the way that God sees you, then you begin to understand the statement that no one deserves mercy. No one. We sometimes think, well, well, God deserves... No, He doesn't owe anyone mercy. No one deserves anything other than punishment. Nothing else. When we stop and consider these things, our hearts should be broken as we begin to see and understand ourselves the way God sees us. In fact, in Romans 3, after Paul laid out all those things about how bad we are, that long list I read there in verses 10 to 18, he goes on to tell us what the proper response is should be in our hearts. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Did you catch what he's getting at here? He's saying that when you realize these truths, two things should happen. Number one, your mouth, your mouth should be shut. No ability to speak. No ability to respond. No, but God, you don't know. No, he understands. No, well, this isn't right. No. No assumption that he would love you. No belief that he owes you anything at all. Your mouth should be shut because you should see the failure that you are before him. Number two, it should make you feel your guilt the ESV uses this phrase here, held accountable. I don't like that. I think that's a horrible translation. Because the word has to do with someone who is condemned because they're guilty. It's like you're the person walking down death row to the chair. That's your accountability, okay? That's why I don't like that translation. You're condemned because you're guilty. That's who you are. You're a criminal and you deserve your punishment. And when you realize the extent of all that we've done, 
There's no other right conclusion. And if the Scriptures stopped here, boy, we would be left truly hopeless, would we not? Mouths shut, bearing the full weight of our sin and condemnation and God's wrath. Those next two words of Romans 3 are two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, despite our guilt and rebellion and treachery, the very person whom we had rebelled against, the very person we had injured, the very person whom we had sought to overthrow chooses to step in and make a way to set all those things right. That's what he's talking about here. And so, in verse 25, God put Christ Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. If you've been at Cornerstone any length of time, you know I like that word a lot. It's like one of my favorite biblical words. If you haven't been here, I'll explain it to you again. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of someone else. You're like, that's not clear. Well, picture those old movies like set on some tropical island where the volcano is rumbling. And so the local natives say, we've got we've to appease the volcano god. And so they go and they take a virgin and they carry her up to the top of the volcano and they throw her in, hoping that it'll appease the, the volcano god. In those stories, the girl is the propitiation. She is the sacrifice they're making, hoping that it will satisfy the wrath of the God. Well, in the scriptures, we know who the real God is, the true God, Jesus, God the Father, and his wrath is against us. And none of us had a propitiation. There was nothing we could give. There was nothing we could offer. Nothing at all. And so God steps in and he provides his own propitiation. He takes it upon himself to satisfy his own wrath. And so he takes the most precious thing he has, his own son, and he sends him to earth as a man. He allows him to be murdered. He places all our sin on him. And his wrath is satisfied as a result He counts the innocent blood of Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. He poured out his wrath on his own son so that he didn't have to pour it out on us. Now, Paul's clear about something here. The propitiation's been made. It's done. The sacrifice is finished once for all. There's nothing else to do. But his death must be received by faith. There's there's no other way. In other words, there's nothing we can do, which I hope you understand in more detail now than perhaps you ever have in the past. 
Because if you really understand how evil you are, how much of a rebel you are, the traitor you are in God's eyes, what are you going to give him? What evil deed will you perform for him to make him want to love you? What unrighteous act will you offer to him so that he'll want to save you? There's nothing. There's nothing at all that we can do. None of us are good, not even one. And so we are justified, which means declared righteous, by his grace as a gift. The the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all and only those who believe. And what you see Paul getting at here is that salvation is by faith alone or it is no salvation at all. It's interesting to me that when we consider where we started last Sunday and where we're ending today, that the issue of faith is primary in both places. You say, I don't, I don't understand. We didn't talk about faith last week. Yeah, we did. You just didn't catch it. See, when you think back to Genesis 3, 1 through 6, you will begin to realize that their rebellion was ultimately rooted in unbelief. I mean, think about it for a moment. For whatever reason, they did not believe in either what God had said to them nor in what he had done for them. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust that he had their best interest in mind. They didn't trust his plan, his purposes, his will, none of it. And because they didn't believe, they decided to take matters into their own hands. And of course, we, we know what came from that. Isn't it ironic then that in salvation, God reverses every single one of those aspects? So that in order to be saved from our sins, to be saved from God's wrath, you both have to believe in what God said and in what he did. You have to believe the scriptures. You have to believe in Jesus' death on the cross for your sins. You, You can't have salvation apart from belief in those things. In order to be saved from our sins, be saved from God's wrath, we have to trust him completely to trust his plan, his purposes, and to put no trust in anything or anyone else, especially ourselves, that in order to be saved, we have to renounce our own lordship and accept Jesus as Lord. It's, It's a complete reversal of the fall that we just studied in Genesis 3. Complete. Adam and Eve were guilty. We are more guilty still. And yet God loved us so much that he himself made a way to put back what had been destroyed. And what we see now is God making a new creation. And I hope, I hope when you hear these words or read these words in the scriptures in the future, whether you're in 2 Corinthians 5 or Galatians 6 or whatever, that you never read them the same way again. Because God is now making a new creation, not this time with planets and trees and animals and stars and stuff like that. He's making a new creation out of rebels who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the new creation he's building now. And so as we think about our lives today, there's still nothing good we can do on our own. I still have nothing to offer him. My hope to this day is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. He's all I have. I have nothing else. I have no righteousness on my own. I have nothing apart from him. That's not a bad thing. 
That is the most comforting truth you will hear in your life. There's nothing we have apart from Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you are all we have. We see it so clearly in your word who we really are. We are rebels. We are traitors. We are criminals. We have sinned against you completely in every sense. There is nothing good in us, not even one thing. And if you left us in that state, you left us on our own, we would have no hope whatsoever. Oh, but Jesus, we thank you this morning that that is not how you left us. Father, we thank you that even though we could not make a sacrifice that would satisfy your wrath, that in your love and your mercy and your grace, you chose to do it yourself. And so today we stand here, Lord, as rebels, as criminals, as traitors who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We stand here holding nothing but our hope and trust and faith in Jesus alone. It's like the old hymn says, just as I am without one plea, not one, but that thy blood was shed for me. Lord, for those of us in here this morning who have experienced this new birth, this new creation, may we rejoice in the salvation that is ours in Jesus like we haven't in a very long time. May we remember that there was never anything good in us. And to this day, we have nothing apart from you. And may we depend on you fully as a result. And Lord, if there's anyone in here who has not bowed their knee to you, is still trying to be their own Lord, will you take the truth of the gospel that we have seen so clearly from Genesis through Romans or throughout the entire scripture and soften their heart, break their stubbornness so that they will bow their knee to you and experience what this new creation is all about. Lord, we love you. We are so thankful for your word, so thankful for the gospel. We ask that you will help us now to live our lives in a manner that's worthy of you, not in our own power, but through the power of the Spirit within us. In Jesus' name we pray.